Our scripture reading today is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Uh, before we stand for the reading of that, I just wanted to give a just a real quick, brief introduction, sort of, to what we're doing here. If you're if you're new to Hope of Christ, or if you've just started attending here, um, especially if you just started in January, I'll tell you that normally at Hope of Christ, what we do is uh, work our way uh, just slowly through a book of the Bible, preaching each passage as it shows next, uh, which is called expository preaching, if you're looking for a fancy word for it. Uh, it's also called uh, easy to do because you don't have to come with, uh, with a new topic every Sunday. So, uh, but that's what we do at Hope of Christ out of commitment to God's Word. That way I'm not just preaching to you from soapboxes or, or my own little pet peeves, but actually whatever comes up next in Scripture. But in January, often at Hope of Christ, we take time to either focus on or remember the mission that God has called us to or what we're doing here at Hope of Christ. And so the first Sunday of, of the month, this month, we had a building dedication. Uh, we purchased this building just uh, in the past, uh, in, in 2023, and so we wanted to take time to celebrate what God had done, and it raised the question, what is the church? Because this structure, these walls, this is not the church, but we are the church. You and I together, we are the local church. We are hope of Christ. Uh, but in preaching that, then it sort of dawned on me, like, well, what else, what are the ramifications of that? And so last week we talked a little bit about uh, the fellowship of the saints and what it is to be in fellowship together. And it's more than just having potlucks, but we're in partnership together for the gospel. We are partners together. We're, there's buy-in, there's sacrifice. We care for each other. We bear each other's burdens. We also uh, together care for our community. This week, uh, we'll focus on, if, if last week we were looking at the fellowship of the saints, this week we want to answer the question of what does it mean to be stewards in God's kingdom? So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this, servi their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission 
flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So another little warning, uh, especially if you're new to Hope of Christ, uh, if this is one of your first Sundays here, uh, you might be thinking to yourself, I knew it. I knew it. It was only a matter of time. Every pastor, all he wants is your money. All he cares about is your sacrificial and cheerful giving. I guarantee you if I wrote my check and was angry, he wouldn't return it to me. He doesn't care if I'm cheerful. He just cares that it cashes. I can only tell you to ask a neighbor who's been here more than a year, even a neighbor who's been here more than five years, uh, it, is, it is not often that I preach on uh, giving or on uh, tithes and offerings or on stewardship or on generosity even. Now, if you compare my track record to Jesus' track record, if you, just, if you have one of those Bibles that has the red letters for everything that Jesus says, you will find that about 25% of what Jesus talks about is money or your attitude toward your belongings or stewardship or generosity. 25%. So if I had my handy-dandy WWJP, what would Jesus preach? I would be talking about money and stewardship and generosity once a month. I'm not going to do that. I'll go back to just expository preaching soon. Uh, but while I'm not planning on preaching once a month on giving or on generosity or on our attitudes toward our wealth, it is appropriate that we occasionally be reminded of what, what does Scripture teach about these things? What is it that, that God expects of us? And especially, not just in a, how do I do this in a, how do I check the boxes? How do I make sure that I'm doing it right? But more in a, well, how am I worshiping God with all of my heart? If God says to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, does that love for Him show up in my attitude toward my wealth or in my generosity? I want to do this not in a way that it sounds like hammering or, or giving boxes to check, but... In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, after talking about giving, Paul says to the Corinthians, I do not want what is yours. 
I want you. I don't want what is yours. I want you. And so first we're going to consider what does Scripture have to say about our wealth and, and ownership and stewardship. And then we're going to look at both the Old and New Testament and see what it teaches us on giving, uh, giving locally or giving. Is, is, is the tithe even a thing to be thinking about in the New Testament? And then at the end, hopefully we'll have time for the, the yeah buts and the now what's and the what ifs, just the frequently asked questions when it comes to talking about uh, generosity or about uh, even just giving to the church in general or specifically. So first of all, when we go through, when we think about wealth and ownership and stewardship, uh, I do want to say one thing at the front end. Nowhere in the Bible does God equate wealth with sin. Having stuff is not sinful. Being wealthy is not a sin. Job was wealthy, extremely so. Uh, we're in Sunday school working our way through the book of Genesis right now. Abraham, you would have to say, was wealthy. He had a lot of stuff. He had enough servants that he could man an army on his own when five kings had gotten together to try to take over the area. He was a wealthy man. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. He owned his own family uh, tomb in which our Savior was buried. Lydia from Acts 16, she was a wealthy businesswoman. She used her wealth to serve the apostles and then the church of Philippi. Barnabas, Paul's partner in mission, we're told was, was a wealthy man. He, he owned land that he sold and, and gave to the church. Being wealthy is not sinful. Pursuing wealth for wealth's sake is. We're going to have a lot of Bible passages. I did give Calvin a warning. Uh, hopefully, I won't go so fast, and, and he'll, he'll keep up, and, and I'll be able to put those up here. But you can write them down. I'll try to give the passage every time. Uh, first, I want you to look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the desire to be wealthy is a temptation, is a snare. Many people misquote that verse and say money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul said, was it? He said, the love of money is a root 
of all kinds of evil. The love of money will pull you into all sorts of troubles. It is even powerful enough to draw us away from God. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on un- the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here, Paul isn't saying it's sinful to be wealthy. He's saying, wealthy, there's a a certain gift that God has given to you so that you can be generous to others, so that you can care for others. Don't just be wealthy in your savings account, but be rich in good works toward others. It's not a sin to have a good job. It's not a sin to work hard and to pay your bills and to save money. That's not a sin. It is a sin to attach your identity to those things, to attach your worth to any of those things, to say, this defines who I am. Without this, what would I be? In Ephesians 4, Paul gives a reason for, for the money that we have. Let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that me ha- he may have something to share with anyone in need. One final word on wealth itself comes from actually uh, the wealthiest man in his time. Uh, Solomon was the son of David. He was the third king of Israel, and by all accounts, at the time, he was the wealthiest man alive. Solomon was so wealthy, other world leaders came to Israel to see his wealth and to hear his wisdom. That's, you have a lot of money when people just want to see your money. Say, hey, could I see your money? That's so cool. That's Solomon. But Solomon himself says in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's all vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich doesn't even let him sleep. There's a a vanity, there's an emptiness, there's a a vaporness to just pursuing wealth for wealth's sake. In the end, all you get to do is stare at your wealth. And what's the point of that, Solomon says? But if it's possible to be wealthy without sinning or to have stuff or even want stuff without being greedy or envious, how does one protect against those sins? How how do we protect against those snares that accompany wealth? And part of how we do that is answering the question of ownership. 
Whose is it? After all, if, if I own it, then I get to do what I want with it. If I decide to give any of it to God, then He should be grateful. But if God owns it, that changes things, doesn't it? What if I don't own any of it? What if God owns all of it? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells us, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your God, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers. In Psalm 50, David says, Every beast, this is God speaking, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In Haggai, God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And even in the New Testament, James reminds us, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Everything belongs to God. You, me, your time, your talents, your treasures, your stuff, your paychecks. It all belongs to God. It's never a question of how much of uh, my wealth do I need to give to God. It should always be a question of how much of God's blessing should I spend on myself? This raises a, the biblical concept of stewardship. A steward is a person who, who manages the wealth or property of someone else. The wealth is another person's. Even if the wealth blesses the steward, even if the steward is allowed to use some of that wealth for himself, the ownership is never the steward's. It always belongs to the master or to the king. Now, if we can't get through a sermon on the fellowship of the saints without bringing up the fellowship of the ring, we certainly cannot get through a sermon on stewardship without mentioning the most notorious steward in all of literature. Lord Denethor II, son of Echthelion II, the 26th steward of Gondor. Do you remember him? If you've read the books or if you've seen the movie, the steward of Gondor, he's not the king because the king hasn't been around for a while, but he's the steward. He reigns on behalf of the king. His, the king's wealth is under his control. He was the father of 
Boromir and Faramir. He was charged with overseeing the people, with managing the king's wealth until the king's return. And in the movie, we're exposed to the, just the grasping aspirations of Denethor when he says, I will not bow to this ranger, speaking of this, this man, Aragorn. He was one of the nine of the fellowship. He was the heir of Isildur. He was the rightful king of Gondor. And Gandalf the wizard replies to Denethor's outburst, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. To which Denethor screams, the whole rule of Gondor is mine and no others. Seems strange, doesn't it? How bizarre. What an odd attitude he would have, especially, especially when we know that Aragorn has endured so much to save his people. I mean, he has emptied himself of his wealth. He has, he has humbled himself. Like he's, he's viewed as nothing but a ranger. He doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And here's this Denethor saying, I won't bow to him. This kingdom is mine. <clears throat> Does your stewardship of the king's wealth and his gifts to you, do they mirror the attitude of Denethor? When, look, when you look at the realm, your domain, your bank account, your gifts, your time, is there a twinge of, I rule this realm, I and no other? Or does it look more like Faramir when he became the 27th steward after the king's return? And for his faithfulness and his sacrificial service to the king, the king named him Prince, Prince of Ithilien. You and I are stewards here, but we will one day be princes and princesses, kings in the kingdom of God, a royal priesthood. But admittedly, understanding wealth and ownership and stewardship is only half of the issue because we still, it still raises the question of what about tithes and offerings and the principles in Scripture? What of the tithe? And there's a couple approaches to tithing, by the way, still today. One is that the, the principle, the law of the tithe that was established in the Old Testament is still is still a principle, is still a, a rule to live by for God's people. Uh, the second idea is that the tithe is technically just a part of the, the ceremonial law, which was the law dictating how or, or telling God's people how to worship in the temple. And since Christ is the temple and we are the temple, that 
ceremonial law, like sacrificial systems and such, those don't apply anymore, and so the tithe doesn't apply anymore. Or perhaps the tithe was part of the civil law given to help God's people at the time in history that God's people were a nation, and so the civil law was given to apply God's law to them, and the tithe is part of the civil law, and that also doesn't apply because now God's people are made up of people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and so the civil law doesn't apply other than how we might apply it to our own civil societies. I tend to lean toward the first of these two, that minimally the principles that come through the tithe still exist for God's people today. Even if we could argue semantically over whether we should call it a tithe or not call it a tithe, the idea of God's people supporting God's work generously and cheerfully and sacrificially still exists today. And one reason I said is because the, even the notion, even the idea of a tithe pre-exists the law of Mount Sinai. So the law that comes into place after God's people are delivered from slavery in Exodus 19 and 20 the idea or the principle of a tithe or generosity in our worship predates that by centuries. So in Genesis 28, Jacob is on the run, and God reveals himself to Jacob in a dream. And when Jacob wakes up, he makes this vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. This stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So by the way, tithe literally just means tenth. It's just a word that means a tenth. And so here is Jacob, long before Mount Sinai, offering to, to worship God by giving a tenth of all that God gives to him. But we can actually go back even deeper, even farther than, than Jacob. We can go back to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, in, in Genesis 14. As I said, Abraham had put together an army of his own servants and gone and, and saved uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, which included his son Lot from, from an evil overtaking of, of four kings fighting against them. And when they come back, uh, a priest named Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. And we're told in, in Genesis 14, after his return from the de defeat of Shedor Laomar, uh, the kings who were, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So even Abram 
meets this strange priest, and he gives him a tenth of all that he had just gained from, from the battle. But can we go back even further? Can we go even deeper into the history of mankind and see that God's people had a habit of worshiping God with the blessings that God had poured out onto them. In Genesis 4, right outside the gates of the Garden of Eden, we read about Abel and Cain. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. The principle, the idea of worshiping God by giving back to God of the first portions, of the fattest portions, of the best portions of what God has so richly blessed His people, the idea of this is established as far back as Genesis 4. Not just the idea of that, but the idea that that our attitude toward that type of worship might impact God's delight in that worship. Where we read that Cain gave some, that Abel gave of the fat portions and of the first fruits. Now, the law does flesh out the tithe for us. I don't want to say that there's not a lot of information in the law for us about the tithe. And in Numbers 18, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. The tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I've given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Moreover, speak to the Levites and say, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I've given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So not only was there a tithe, but there was an expectation that the tithe, in part, was to provide for the Levites, but also that the Levites were to tithe themselves. They also were to to give a tithe, a principle that that my own family uh, still lives by. Whether we have been employed outside of the church or inside of the church, a giving of a minimum of a tithe to the church is a principle established even here in the law. In Deuteronomy 14, God talks about another tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year before the Lord your God in the place that He chooses to make His name dwell there. And you shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock, so that you may learn the fear of the Lord your God. And then in Deuteronomy 14, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out a tithe of all your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are with you in your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled so that the Lord may bless you in all the work that your hands do. So if you're keeping track, that's actually three 
in Numbers and then in Deuteronomy, in these two sections of Deuteronomy, that's three different tithes mentioned. Two of them given annually, one of them given every three years. Now, unless they're double dipping and, only, and they are taking one tithe and giving to the other, that actually adds up to 23 and a third percent. The tithe was just an expression of portions of what they had. Twice a year, once a year, they would give both tithes, and every three years, they would give a tithe specifically for the poor and for the widows. And this doesn't even take into account free will offerings or peace offerings or offerings for vows. All of these, a portion of those would be used to serve the ministers in the, in the temple. But a couple of passages in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, speak to the generosity of God's people. Our attitudes toward our stuff, our attitudes toward giving... One passage that speaks very positively of our attitudes and generosity. One passage that seems a little passive. We don't know if it's good or bad. And the third that, that speaks pretty negatively. In Exodus 36, they're getting ready. They're gathering offerings to build the tabernacle. Do you remember this? They were giving gifts to the tabernacle for the tabernacle. And it says, uh, they still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work of, that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. That would be weird. Could you imagine? Could you imagine one Sunday your deacons coming and saying, Okay, stop. Just, just stop. Oh my goodness. What? There, we have so much money. Please stop. Please stop. That would be incredible. If we could say to all the missionaries that we want to support, we, we have so much money, like you don't even need to raise more support. We have so much money. You don't need to worry about your kids and their, their shoes and their books. Like we've got you covered. We've got everything you need. The, the, the church, we're going we're gonna to worship here. We're, put, we're not just putting up new drywall. We're raising the ceiling 40 feet. We, are, we will be the church that people are like, look what God has done. But we have enough to do that, so just keep the rest. That would be crazy. In Haggai 1, the Lord of hosts says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the, by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. He says, Is it time to, for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, 
You never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. Consider your ways. Go to the hills. Bring wood. Build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified. People had come back from exile. Apparently, it wasn't quite time to build the house of God. They still, they, but they had plenty of time to build their houses. And in Malachi, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that, that it may be full of food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and, and pour down on you a blessing. So there's this, there are principles of giving that are established in the Old Testament. It's a, first of all, giving is an expression of gratitude. Second, we see giving is an expression of faith, an expression of trusting God. Giving a tithe means giving to men for God's sake. It's not like throwing it up in the sky. But you've, maybe you've heard that story about the, the three guys who were out golfing, and they said, this is how I tithe. I draw a circle on the ground, and I throw my paycheck into the air. I cash it in, and, and all the money that falls inside the circle is for God, and all the money falls outside the circle is for me. And the other guy says, well, I do the same thing. I cash my check, I draw a circle, and I throw the money in the air, and everything that falls inside the circle I keep, and everything that falls outside the circle I give to God. And the third guy said, yeah, I do that same thing. I draw a circle, I cash in my check, I throw my money in the air, and anything that God wants, he's welcome to keep, and everything that falls is mine. Like, obviously, our giving to God is a giving to other people for the sake of doing God's work here on earth. Part of our giving is for the disadvantaged. Part of our giving is to provide for those who, who do full-time work. It's part of why ministers don't like to preach on giving, because the reality is some of what you give is for me. It feels weird to say, you should think about giving more. To me. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. You know, the Old Testament, I mean, it tells us here in Malachi, like God promises some sort of blessing if you tithe, if you give to God out of generous and cheerful hearts. And I know I said we're going to get to the what-ifs later, but... Maybe you have that question, like, what does that mean? Like, God will bless. God's going to bless us. What is the blessing that God promises? Is it, is it wealth? Is it happiness? Is it health? Is it that nothing bad will ever happen to you? The blessing is himself. God promises to give you himself. God promises to care for you.
giving sacrificially will not mean bad things don't happen to you. Giving sacrificially does not mean that you won't go through really hard times. But it does mean that God promises to be with you. His blessing is of himself. Even as he says, I don't want what's yours. I want you. The blessing he offers to you is himself. You know, the New Testament reminds us that tithing is not a cure-all. Tithing is not a guarantee of righteousness. You know, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees! I mean, you tithe so rigidly, and yet you don't care for the poor. You don't, you don't care about justice or mercy. In the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, the Pharisee says, you know, I praise you, God, that I'm not like other men. I, I give a tenth of everything I own. Giving to the church is not a guarantee of a right heart with God. But the New Testament does speak of giving to the church. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you lo- your love is genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. How we give, how we sacrifice for others reflects what we believe about what has Christ given and sacrificed for me. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 3, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in wealth and generosity. In the passage that we read for our scripture reading in 2 Corinthians 9, the, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or, or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So why does the New Testament seem so silent on the idea of a tithe? The, this whole notion of a tenth. Part of it is because of the whole way that the New Covenant sort of explodes our expectations from the Old Covenant. Like, in every other area of life, you see that there's things that go on in the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant says, wait a minute, it's way bigger than that. So the Bible says, you've heard that it says, don't murder. Well, what are the words you're using against each other? How's your hatred toward one another? You think uh, the Old Covenant is all about don't commit adultery. The New Covenant says, well, wait a minute. What's your heart? What? Where are you? Are you looking lustfully on others? Like what? Where is the it? It everything in the New Covenant gets larger, not smaller. And so, for example, in Luke 3. John the Baptist says, listen, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. If you're a math person, that's a 50%. Do you own two coats? Give one away. 
In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, do you remember? We looked at Zacchaeus in his life. He says, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. I mean, you don't even have to be a math person to know half of my goods is 50%. If you're not sure, you can talk to Jerry and he can help you figure that out. Half equals 50%. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, If you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Uh, that's about 100%. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. In Luke 14, Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In Acts 2, the church getting together, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts 4, there was a, not a needy person among them. For as they were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and they distributed it to any as had need. I was talking with a man recently who was talking about his interactions with churches and why he doesn't really like some of the churches he's been to. And one of the churches he went to, the, the pastor, no lie, said, preached from the pulpit, if you would cash in your 401ks and give that money to the church, God will keep your cars running. Yeah. And so he said, so I didn't cash in my 401k. And two days later, I got home and my car stalled in my driveway. But I had the $200 to replace the alternator and it started right back up. Jesus says that uh, our use, our, our, our attitude toward our wealth is a sign of maturity and trust. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What do you treasure? What we treasure is what we worship. In fact, he goes on in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Our wallets, our checking accounts, our bank accounts, these are all pictures. Do I, do I use the wealth that God has given me to worship Him and to love others? Or do I use my relationship with God to build my wealth? Do I, do I serve God in order to get more money or do I use my money to serve God? God is able to make all grace abound to you in the passage we read so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
Obviously, it's not, it's not a coincidence that I'm preaching on this at a time when we are preparing to, to present the budget to you all. I mean, we, the church, cannot exist without the generosity of the church. Like, there is no the church. There's us, the church. Like, it's not that you're, that hope of Christ is this other entity. You are hope of Christ. We are the fellowship of saints together. So for some of those questions, there's always the first question. Well, gross or net? Um, first, I'll say, I don't care. I don't care. Give on net. Give cheerfully, regularly, sacrificially on your net, and I'll be fine. The church will be fine. The, the church universal would be fine. If all of God's people across the world were giving cheerfully, regularly, and sacrificially, but it was only based on their net, not on the gross, I'll bet the church would be overflowing with opportunities and abilities to care for others. Now, saying I don't care, I will say there are first fruits principles established in the Bible that we give first to God. You give of your first fruits. How much? How much should I give? Well, if we look at Scripture, I'd say that probably 10% is a base to start at. If you're wondering how much to give, start at 10% locally and then see if there are ministries that you could give to as well. In fact, that raises the other question, like what do I give to the local church, the larger church? What about parachurch? Sure. Again, I'd say start with your local church. Your local church is the one you've taken a vow to. At Hope of Christ, every one of us vows, I will, I will support Hope of Christ in her worship and work to the best of my ability. Well, what if you can't afford it? Well, start with what you can afford. But certainly ask yourself the question, why? Why can't I afford it? Like, have I, are, there, are there debts that I, have, that I have accrued that I need to really take a serious step toward getting rid of those debts and start with what I can afford and then commit to just increasing it a little bit until there is a, an ability to do it, again, regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully. Some of you know Pastor Doug Kittredge, the, the founding pastor of New Life in Christ in Fredericksburg. They, they were our planting church. It was Doug's vision to see a church in Stafford that brought us here. Doug moved to, to Fredericksburg in 1974, and when they called him to see if he would come and plant a church in Fredericksburg, he asked them how many families they had. And they had about 10 families, and he said, yeah, I'll come. He said, I figured if there's 10 families and they're all willing to give 10%, then my salary's covered. 
And now we can just grow. Now every other family that comes is adding to what we can do. What if I'm not cheerful? Well, so repent and give and repent again. Have you ever, have you ever gone home from a hard day's work, men, and said to your wife, I don't feel like being nice to you today, and I know we want authenticity in our marriage, so I'm not going to be nice. And when I feel like being, when I feel it, then you'll know because I'll start being nice to you. But until then, I'm not going to be nice. But aren't you glad that we have this genuine relationship? Like, no. No, I'm not. How about this? Pretend to be nice, ask for my forgiveness, and then work on being nicer. Yeah, am I not cheerful in my giving? Okay, well, repent. But God still calls us to give. Some questions like are strange questions. Can I give electronically and still be worshiping? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah, it's, it's, it's your attitude, your heart. We don't have to pass the plate. In fact, passing the plate is a very American Christian church thing. That didn't always happen. Can I count my kids' Christian education as my tithe? Uh, the, the short answer is no. No. No, you cannot. Uh, you can't call, count your kids' college tuition as your tithe. Like, that's not, no. You're getting, like, that's a trade for services rendered. That's what that is. You bought you bought, hopefully, a good education. Uh, in all of, all of the years of marriage, Amy and I have been married 32 years. For 30 of those years, I've been out of college. In all of those 30 years, we have made some incredibly awful financial decisions like laughably bad decisions. But one thing that we set the moment I was out of college and had a more regular job, we have committed to a minimum of a tithe to the local church always. That has been our first priority every month has been the tithe. And I, I will tell you two things. One, most of you are aware of. It doesn't protect you from hard things. But two, God has always been there for us. Not because we've bribed him, but I will tell you, he has always cared for us. He has always provided for us. Sometimes through decades of living well below the median income of the area, God has always provided for us. And scripture and God invites you in this one thing. He says, test me. 
Test me in this. I'm with you. I'm for you. I don't want your stuff. I want you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the the patience of your congregation here, for, for your generosity to us as a church and each of us individually. I thank you for our deacons and their their constant work with the deacons fund in seeking to care for and provide for and help those who are facing financial trials and struggles and hardships. I thank you for your faithfulness to us for your generosity, that you did not just give to us out of your wealth, you gave your wealth. You gave your Son. Jesus, you embraced flesh and poverty and need and want for us. You God, have made us sons and daughters of the King. I pray that we individually would be good and faithful stewards of what you have blessed us with. But I pray that we, as hope of Christ, would be good and faithful stewards of all that you have blessed us with. That how we, as a congregation, how we spend what you have given to us would reflect that we trust you, that we love you, and that we are on mission for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.